Ezekiel chapter 37. The title for this message, which is the third Sunday in Advent, the title is Among Us. Has anybody ever heard of Among Us? All across the land there is a cry going up from parents everywhere and the cry goes something like this. Are you still on that iPad? Because there's a game on an iPad called Among Us and infants are playing it day and night. Anybody else experience that in their home? No? Just me? Um, So I couldn't resist using it as a title. There will be no further reference to it, thankfully. Um, So Ezekiel chapter 37. Let me read the first three or four verses. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And he asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, O sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. I have mentioned a lot in the last few months the idea of exile. God's people in the Old Testament, exiled from Jerusalem, living in Babylon, away from the temple, away from his presence, away from their homes. And this passage is written to people in exile without a temple. They are separated from all that is familiar and all that is precious to them. And we read how they are waiting for a word. Now, we're on a wee journey here, so you've got you've to track with me. You know the score. In Ezekiel 37, verse 4, the, the prophet is, is told to speak to the bones. And the bones represent God's people in exile, dry, dead, disconnected, lifeless, this valley full of gloom and death. And God says to the prophet to speak to the bones and say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And the people are waiting for a word. Okay? People in exile waiting for a word. When you read on in Ezekiel, Ezekiel's a difficult enough book to read. A lot of the good stuff's at the end. Uh, at the end in, in verse or in chapter 47, there is talk of a temple. God's people in exile are separated from the temple and there is talk of a future temple It says in in chapter 47, just picking out a few verses, the man brought me back to the entrance to the temple and I saw water coming from under the threshold of the temple. We've got this picture of a temple and this life-giving stream is coming from it. The water had risen and was deep enough to swim in a river that no one could cross. I saw a great number of trees on each side of the river. Swarms of living creatures will live wherever the river flows. So God's people in exile are waiting for a word and they're waiting for a temple. What are they waiting for? Come on. A word and a temple. They're waiting for a word and they're waiting for a temple. The temple was the place of God's presence. It was the place of revelation, the place of worship, 
God, of course, is everywhere at all times, but for, for his people, he met them in this location in the temple. It was a place of encounter. It was a place of glory. And it was the temple that Solomon built was, of course, a, a more fixed, permanent version of the previous tabernacle, which was just a tent Not much to look at on the outside, but once you went in, it was ornate and it was the place of God's presence where he met with his people. And you read in both Exodus and in uh, in 1 Kings 6, when the tabernacle is completed in Exodus, you read about the glory of God filling the tabernacle. So by the time you get to Exodus 40, you've had about 20 chapters of how to build a tabernacle. And it can be hard going all the furniture and all the details. But when you get to the end of it, you get this moment at the end where God's glory fills the tabernacle. This temple, tent, tabernacle, place of his presence, and he is there. And then in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read of Solomon's temple being finished. And once again, we read that the glory of the Lord fills the temple. This was the place of glory and presence. And the exiles have received a promise. They are in Babylon and they have received a promise that a word will come. There will be a word that will revive them, a word that will bring hope. When you read on in Ezekiel 37, you read of a people who are without hope, cut off. And there will be a word, the the son of man, the, the prophet is referred to as a son of man and told to bring a word. And they are also promised about a temple where once again people will encounter the presence of God. Once again, his glory will be shown to those who come to this temple. They're promised a word and they are promised a temple. And some rebuilding of the temple does go on after they, some of them come back out of exile. There's a little bit of work goes on rebuilding the temple, but it's never finished. And we never read of God's glory filling it the way it filled Solomon's temple and the way it filled the tabernacle. Herod came along and pumped some money into it as a political move to, to get some favor with the Jews, but it was not like the temples that had gone before. Haggai, the the prophet, spoke about the glory of a new temple that would be greater than the old temple. It never happened in the Old Testament. It never happened. But there was this prophecy, there's going to be a future temple where the glory will be greater than anything that has ever gone before. So they didn't get the temple that they're waiting for, nor did they get the word that they were waiting for. What they got was 400 years of silence. When the prophets were not prophesying, when God was not speaking to the people, or certainly not in a way that we have recorded. The promise of a word, the promise of a temple, but neither of them come. There's no word, there's no temple, there's no presence, and there's no glory. And then you get John. (laughs) John chapter 1, that Linda read earlier. Starts off, and then you've got, remember, this, this people waiting for a word, a word that will revive the dry bones, a word that will bring people back from exile, which means it will bring forgiveness of sins, a word that will bring this disconnected, dead valley of dry bones back together into an army. They're waiting for a word. 
waiting for centuries. And then John starts off and he says, in the beginning was the word. And he references Genesis and he references here Ezekiel. And as he goes on, he will reference Exodus. He just takes everything and fires it into the pot and mixes it up and comes out with a glorious feast. In the beginning was the word. A word is coming. Hope-filled, reviving, life-giving, exile-ending word is coming, according to John. And it's not any old word. And it's not even a new word. It's the word that was always there from the beginning. It's a word that creates, a word that brings light and brings life as we read on. A word that, that, that cannot be overcome by the darkness And a note as well as as John's first readers who've been waiting for a word and they read the first verse and they hear that a word is coming and then they read another couple of verses and they read through him all things were made. And in him was life. And you realize the word is a person. It's not a message. It's not a quotation. It's not a verse. The word is a person. The word that's going to revive these dry bones and bring life is a person who brings life and who brings light. And then as you read on in John John 1 and you get to verse 14, you get this. Now, it's always a dangerous thing to say, this is my favorite verse, because we all have different seasons in life whenever uh, a particular verse will be particularly strong in our our thinking and will bring life to us and will cling to. Uh, But this verse... Every single time I read it, I stop and think, that's amazing. (laughs) And there are other verses that maybe five years ago, going through a particular thing, and a verse was amazing to me. And as I read it again, it has not diminished in its value, but it's not hitting me with quite the same impact at this stage. But this verse, every single time I read it, and in my reading plan, I'll usually hit this two, three, four times a year. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. That is incredible. I never get beyond John 1.14 without a moment at least of a pause to just think that is still incredible. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. It never loses its power. The word is not only a person, the word's a human being. It's not, it's not an angel. It's not somebody distant and far off. The word is a human being. The word became flesh. Now, these guys were on the news this week. Have you ever seen one of those before? That is a pygmy possum. And that's somebody's thumbnail beside it. Did you even know something could be that small? But apparently in uh, somewhere in Australia where there were a lot of fires last year, these uh, researchers and scientists have discovered that the pygmy possums have survived. They were worried about them because they hadn't seen them in a long time. And just in this past week, they have found some pygmy possums. Aren't they cute? Yeah? Do you want one? Yeah. Yeah. They're very cute. And why have I got a pygmy possum on the screen? Well... The scientists that went looking for these wee boys are very concerned about them and they research them and they want to rescue them and save them and they're, they're interested in their welfare 
uh, and they probably genuinely have, have feelings for these little characters. But I don't know that any of the scientists want to actually become a pygmy possum in order to save the pygmy possums. Yes, they still want to remain as human beings helping out these little critters. None of them wants to set aside their human beingness and become a pygmy possum to save the rest of them. But Jesus set aside his glory and became one of us. And that we need to ponder and reflect on because that is incredible. And it should never, ever lose its power. It should never lose its wonder. This chapter and this verse comes every year at Advent. We hear this in some context at some stage. It should never be a case of yawn. It's John 1.14 again. This is incredible. The word became flesh. And you know what? Jesus did not drop off his flesh when he ascended into heaven. After his death, his resurrection, his time with the disciples, teaching them about the kingdom of God, they saw him being taken up into heaven. And you don't read that 30 seconds later, flesh and bones drop back to earth as if he took it off again and chucked it away. He's still flesh. He became flesh. It was a permanent change. Incredible that the God of all the universe who created the world would take on humanity and not just discard it again when he was finished, but keep it. That's how much he loves us and wanted to save us. He is still flesh. And that means he knows what you're going through. He knows it because he's experienced it. He doesn't know it because somebody told him. One of the frustrating things about school at the minute is there's an awful lot of telling going on and not enough doing. <laughs> there's not enough opportunity for the kids to do stuff and learn by doing. They're learning by hearing. Well, Jesus did not learn of our hardships by hearing. He learned by doing. He learned by becoming flesh and dwelling among us. So he knows what people are going through. He knows the pain of bereavement for his friend Lazarus. He knows compassion for broken humanity. He knows because he experienced it. He became flesh. He knows what it is to have his heart broken. He knows what it is to be criticized, to be mocked, to be put down, to be rejected. He knows all of those things because he became flesh. He knows. He knows how tired you are. <laughs> I mentioned earlier, 2020 has been a year where you just have had to constantly adapt. And I don't know about you, but I have found that fatiguing and exhausting. Every time you go to do something, it's like, I can't do that the way I did it last year. I've got to change it. I've got to come up with a different way of doing it. That tires me out. But he knows. He became flesh and he knows what we are going through. And he, when he became flesh, he dwelt among us. You know, have you ever heard people say, why does God not come and do something about the state of the world? You get that now and again, you know, people saying about all these things that are going on in the world. Why doesn't, come, why doesn't God come and do something about it? And everything in you is just screaming, he did. <laughs> he did. Mike Frost, 
Where's Mike? There's Mike. Mike Frost is one of the guys that founded Forge. He's an Australian fella. And when you read his blog, he describes himself on the front of his blog as an agitator. (laughs) I love that. The church needs agitators. People who just poke at sacred cows all day long. And Mike Frost is an agitator. And he told a story about a church that he visited one time. And when he walked into the church, all of the chairs had been removed. So the room was, was empty. The floor had been completely covered with black plastic. Waterproof plastic. And in the middle of the floor was a huge pile of garbage. Rubbish. Um, and I don't just mean, you know, bits of scrunched up paper and, and, a, and a few empty boxes. Food waste. It was stinking. The whole place was absolutely rotten. And it was piled up in the middle of the floor. So that, you know, those food waste juices that are at the bottom of your compost box? They're out on the floor seeping around. And all the people are standing around the edges wondering what is actually going on. This pile of stinking waste in the middle of the floor. And then the leaders came out and they rolled up their trousers and started to wade into the middle of it. And they reached down into it and one of them pulled out a bottle of wine. And the other one pulled out a loaf of bread wrapped in plastic. And the church got it. That Jesus waded into all of the dirt and rubbish of humanity and brought bread and wine and brought life. Incarnation. The word became flesh and came right into the very muck of our lives to redeem us. Incredible. Love to do it sometime, but probably get in trouble. The word became flesh and he dwelt He made his dwelling. And those of you that have been around or or that read a wee bit more than than the surface will know this, that that means where it says there that he made his dwelling. It's wonderful. It means he pitched his tent. What were the people waiting for? They're waiting for a word. The people in exile, the dry bones. They're waiting for a word and they're waiting for a temple. And John 1 says, here you've got both wrapped up in one awesome person. He became flesh, the word became flesh and pitched a tent, a tabernacle. And he dwelt among us. Once again, there is access to the place of sacrifice and presence and revelation and worship and glory. Once again, humanity can come to the temple and come to the tabernacle in Jesus. He dwelt among us. He didn't just pay a brief visit. He didn't just call for for a, a weekend and then head off again. He dwelt. He lingered among us. You know, one of the great things about Eugene Peterson's message is his translation of John 1.14. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. Right in among people. And he came among us. And whenever we read in John 1, we see that among us, he he brought light among us. He brought life. If you read verses 12 and 13, you'll see that he brought family. And he brought us into the family of God, made us the, the children of God. He brings glory. He brings truth. He brings grace. All of these things are what he has brought among us. And he has brought God to us. If you look at John 1, I don't have it on the screen, this 
actual verse, but in John 1, John writes at the end of verse 18 that he has made God known to us. If you look that up in the original Greek, what it says is he has exegeted God, which means he has explained God, unpacked God, pulled back the curtain and shown us God. He has revealed to us what God is like. If you want to know what God is like, you look at this Jesus. He turns water into wine and he talks to prostitutes and he annoys religious people and he gives up his life to redeem us. That's what he is like. And he's also among us showing the intimacy we can have with God. One of the things that I find a wee bit inconsistent sometimes is the way we talk about Jesus, I think sometimes denies the power of the incarnation. We say that he is fully God and fully man, and then we talk about him like he's not really fully man. That he's fully God, but he's only only a little bit man. No, the word became flesh. I don't think Jesus sat in his father's carpenter's workshop when he was three years old and got two bits of wood and held them together and thought this is how I'm going to die because if he did then he wasn't a normal three-year-old and he didn't really become flesh how much do we believe in the incarnation whenever we read about Jesus knowing things do we just think that he flicked the God switch or is he actually showing us the intimacy that a human being can have with God when they live fully in reliance on him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And a a very simple illustration is um, when we sing at Christmas, you know, we tell people, come to church and come and, and hear about Jesus, this amazing Jesus who knows your life because he has experienced life. And then we sing a song that says, the cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. And every parent out there screams, well, he didn't really become flesh because babies cry. Does anybody you know, have a, had a baby who doesn't cry? We had a world champion crier in our house around about late 2007, early 2008. Broke all records for volume. Yes. Um, babies cry. If a baby didn't cry, you'd bring it to the doctor and say, the child's not crying, there's a problem. But we sing that Jesus didn't cry. And by singing that, we're saying he wasn't really human. How much of a deal is the incarnation in your understanding of who Jesus is? Fully man, yet fully God. I don't understand it, but I believe it. I believe it. He's among us forever. According to Matthew 28, I will be with you. Always, even to the end of the age. And according to Revelation 22, when it's all wrapped up at the end, we read that the dwelling of God is with men, among us for all eternity. It has always been in the heart of God to be with his people, from the Garden of Eden to the nation of Israel to the church, now and through all eternity, God wants to dwell among people he loves us and he loves to be with us and the verse ends john 1 14 with the fact that we've seen his glory the glory that was in the tabernacle the glory that was in the temple 
that the people of Israel in exile thought we're never going to see this again. And John says, the word has come. The temple is back. And we have once again seen glory. We have once again encountered that presence of God that we have longed for. I started a couple of weeks ago saying that Advent began at the Garden of Eden. It began in the darkness outside the gates when a man and woman were exiled from the presence of God because of sin. That's when Advent began. And as we go through the history of exile, we see a people waiting for a word, waiting for a temple that would bring the presence of God. And then John just screams it out. He's here. He's among us. It has happened in Jesus. There was a Christmas card one time. I don't know who wrote this, but this was on the card. History is full of men who wanted to become gods, but only one God who became man. I don't know of any other, any faith, any religion, any other way of thinking that believes that their, their God took on human flesh and waded into all the dirt of this world to give us bread and wine and to redeem us from exile. The way Jesus communicates the gospel to us is by being among us, by being incarnate. And I would love you over the next couple of weeks to just ponder as we reach, as we move towards the climax of Advent, ponder once again the wonder of it. The word became flesh. He brought the presence of God to us and now he's within us by his spirit and he's saying, I want you to go into the world and I want you to be incarnate in the world, in flesh. I brought the gospel to you by being among you. Now you've got to do the same thing in your world, in your town, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your workplace. Bring the presence of God by being among people. Are we moving into the neighborhood? Because that's what God calls us to do. Think about that. Pray about that for yourself. Pray about that for this church. How in 2021 can we move into the neighborhood? How can we be more incarnate in the community that God has called us to serve? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray.